Well, if you've been with us over the last few weeks and our Sunday evenings, you will know we've been going through a topical series, a series on the attributes of God. And to quickly summarise them, the attributes of God, they are the things that we say about God that make him who he is and what he is like. And it's important that as we go through this series, week by week, we are not just simply ticking off these truths about God like a checklist or treating them, you know, like some sort of abstract theological exercise. No, when we come to consider what God is like each week, what we're thinking about should enlarge our vision, our view of who God is, and therefore lead us to worship and praise him more. And tonight we're going to be thinking about the omniscience of God. What do I mean by that? Well, omni meaning all, and scientia meaning knowledge. It kind of does what it says on the tin, doesn't it? God is all-knowing. He literally knows everything, and everything that God knows, he knows perfectly. And everything God knows perfectly, he knows exhaustively. That means completely. There is nothing that is hidden from him on his sight. And in this way, God, he is different from us, isn't he? Our knowledge, if you're anything like me, it's rather easily and quickly exhausted. It happens all the time, doesn't it? How often do we end up saying, I don't know? Whether that's just through everyday conversations, or whether it's playing articulate with our friends and family, or doing a pub quiz of some kind. There's just so many times that... We just cannot help but say, I don't know. And it's very frustrating, especially if you're competitive like me. But God is not like us. He is all-knowing. He knows everything past. He knows everything present. And he knows everything future. And he knows it perfectly. And he knows it exhaustively. And that's what we're going to be thinking about as we go through Psalm 139, which David read for us earlier in our service. And so if you've got a Bible, please have Psalm 139 open. And we'll see that as we go through this psalm, that the author, King David, he does think about other attributes of God. But the thread, the one attribute of God, the one truth about God that works its way throughout this psalm is the omniscience of God, the all-knowingness of God. And we're going to look at this psalm under three headings, which if you've got one of those little sheets, there's an outline there that helps us navigate our time together. So our first heading, God knows us completely. And that's in verses 1 to 6. God knows us completely. David begins this psalm by talking about God, but also about himself. Did you notice that? David, he confesses that God has all knowledge about himself. And in these verses, we see that God's knowledge is all-encompassing. That is complete That is exhaustive. And David covers this by telling us a number of areas that God knows about us. So first of all, verse 2, David says that God knows what we do. He acknowledges, verse 2, you know when I sit and when I rise. In this way, God's knowledge is detailed, it's intimate, it's particular. I mean, let's face it, those actions that he talks about, they're relatively insignificant, aren't they? I mean, when you sit and when you rise, do you know what scientists say about how many times a day you sit and rise? Do you know how many times? 
No, neither do I. I've not done the research. I mean, there might be some scientists somewhere who found this really interesting. They thought they'd do a whole PhD on how many times people sit and rise a day. But I don't, okay? But the point is that God does. He knows when you sit down and when you rise because his knowledge is comprehensive. He knows everything about us, no matter how insignificant. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus talks about how God's knowledge is all-encompassing. Luke 12, verse 6, listen to this. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs on your head are all numbered. God knows even the insignificant things like sparrows, how many there are. And he knows how many hairs are on your head. And yes, I do know that's harder for some than it is for others. But God knows what we do, even the insignificant things. Secondly, David says in this psalm that God knows what we think. Just glance at the second half of verse 2. David says, you, God, perceive my thoughts from afar. God knows everything that goes on in our minds, our thoughts. He knows our good thoughts when we are trusting in God, when we're, when we are preferring other people to ourselves, when we choose to think good of others rather than take offence, when we choose to overlook a wrong made against us instead of plotting revenge. He knows, even when nobody else does. And yet he also knows our anxious thoughts. He knows our angry and prideful and lustful and doubtful thoughts. Nothing is hidden from him, even the things that no one else can see. And once again, Jesus gives us an example, doesn't he? In Mark chapter 2, there is an episode where Jesus heals a paralyzed man. But Jesus also says to this man, because of his faith and trust in Jesus to heal him, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some teachers of the law who were sitting there, they began thinking to themselves, Ear, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. And so he said to them, why are you thinking these things? And so in this episode, Jesus demonstrates in great power who he is, that he really is the Son of God. Yet that was not the only miracle that he performed. He was able to perceive the thoughts of those who were there and those who were doubting who he was. And so, my friends, God knows what we are thinking 24-7. Thirdly, we see that in the psalm that God knows where we go. Just have a look down at verse 3. Verse 3, David says, you discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all of my ways. God knows how many steps that we take every day, and it's much more accurate than any Fitbit or smartwatch, all right? He knows, and he sees when we go out in public, how we are when we are around other people, what we are like at school or university or in the workplace. He knows but he also sees what happens in private. When we are lying down, David says, when we are in our houses, in our lounges, in our bedrooms, God sees. He sees everything. He knows. 
Hebrews 4 verse 13 says, Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must all give an account. And Proverbs 15 verse 3 says, The eyes of the Lord are everywhere, keeping watch on the wicked and the good. He knows where we go, what we do when we are in public, and what we do when we are in private. Fourthly, God knows what we say. Do you notice that in the psalm? He knows everything and he knows what we will say. He knows all of the words that we will ever speak. What we will text, what we will Instagram, what we will WhatsApp, what we will TikTok, what we will Snapchat. I think that's all of them. I think. But the point is, God knows. He sees. Nothing is hidden from his sight. Indeed, before we have even spoken or texted or anything, he knows what we will say. Verse 4, before a word is on my tongue, or before my thumb is on my keyboard, you know it completely, O Lord. Even before a word is on our tongue, I mean, you kind of get the impression, don't you, that even before we speak, God knows what is going to come out of our mouths. I wonder if you've ever had that moment when You just want to express yourself, but you're not quite sure how, and you don't quite know what you're going to say. We get that a lot with our daughter, Rosie. She's at this point, you know, where, as a toddler, she can be quite shy, but when she gets going, she really gets talking. And she's quite happily talking to anybody, even strangers, for a very long time. And yet, being a toddler, she can't quite get out of all of the words. And sometimes it comes out with really, really interesting expressions uh, that most people don't quite understand. But as parents, we find them very near and dear. Here's an example. There was a time when family of ours came to stay with us. And one morning, it was heard that Rosie was saying, pet, 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 I want pet, pet. This kept going for a while, and she kept getting more agitated, and she kept saying it louder and louder and louder. The family were bemused, you can imagine. But eventually, when I finally got out of bed on my lie-in, I heard her say it to me again. Pet, 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 I want pet, pet, dada. Oh, you mean breakfast. You see, our wider family, they had no idea what Rosie was trying to say, and they were not. They were getting a bit frustrated with her after a while, but as parents, we knew exactly what she was trying to say. And David says in this psalm, it's like that with God, but in a far greater way. He knows what we are going to say, even before we speak. He understands. And fifthly, David says in this psalm that God knows what we need. Just look at verse 5 with me. David says, you hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. David is using the words and the imagery of a war, of being besieged by an army. And yet, instead of being surrounded on all sides by an army trying to conquer you, David is saying that we are surrounded on all sides by God, which for him and for believers like him is very comforting and a good thing indeed. C.H. Spurgeon, the 19th century Reformed Baptist minister, he once said a a few words about verse 5. Have a listen to Spurgeon. As though we were caught in an ambush or besieged by an army which has wholly beleaguered the city, we are surrounded by the Lord. 
God is behind us, recording our sins, or in grace, blotting out the remembrance of them. And before us, there is a God foreknowing all our deeds and providing for all our needs and wants. We cannot turn back and so escape him, for he is behind. And we cannot go ahead and outmarch him, for he is before. David says that God hems us in like a careful parent fencing that crawling baby to protect his children. And he can do this because he knows us completely and he has complete knowledge, the past, the present and the future. And he cares for all that we need. So God knows what we do. He knows what we think. He knows where we go. He knows what we say and he knows what we need. And so it's no wonder that David ends this section of Psalm 139 with verse 6. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. It's beyond human comprehension that God can know this. I mean, just think about it. God knows this for all the billions of people who live in this world today, let alone all the billions of people who have lived before. It's incredible, isn't it? But here's the question. How can God know this? How can God know all things? Well, you might say, well, he's God. Yes, that is true. But the rest of this psalm, my friends, gives us some indications of how God can know everything, how his knowledge is so great. And our second heading is this. God knows us completely because he is our all-present creator. And we see that in verses 7 to 18. As I mentioned, David talks about other attributes of God in this psalm. And in some ways, it's kind of a slightly artificial exercise that we are doing to try and take one attribute of God and consider it in isolation. Because they are all linked in together. God is one and he is whole. And so in these verses, what we see are other attributes of God that David thinks about, but they are all linking into the fact that God is all-knowing. In verses 7 to 12, we see that God is everywhere. He is omnipresent. And in verses 13 to 18, we see that he is the all-powerful creator. He's omnipotent. Now, we're not going to think about this section in full detail. Last week we considered God being all-present, and next week we'll be thinking about God being all-powerful. So please come back for that. But we will go through these verses briefly and see what they have to say to us about God being all-knowing. So first of all, we see that God can know everything because he is everywhere. Just look at verse 7. David says, where can I go from your spirit? What's the answer to that question? Nowhere. Where can I go from God's spirit? Nowhere. He carries on. Where can I go from your presence? He says in the second half of verse 7, what's the answer? The answer is nowhere. David says, if I go to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. One of the reasons that God knows everything is because he is everywhere. We are not, so we don't know all things. Our knowledge is based on our experience, what we can see and what we can hear. But God's knowledge is not like that, is it? 
He doesn't need things. He doesn't need experiences to learn or to know things, does he? Verse 12, even the darkness is not dark to God. Darkness cannot hide us. It doesn't stop God knowing things. Why? Because he is everywhere. Secondly, we see in this section that David says that God knows all things and specifically all things about you and about me because he is our creator. Have a look at verse 13. These are really lovely verses, aren't they? Verse 13, for you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. And now verse 16, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book. Just as an aside, if you ever need a verse to show the immense worth of every single human being, especially the unborn, here is God's truth. That everyone is loved and known by God and every life is precious to him. David is saying that God's knowledge is exhaustive of us because he is our creator and he knew you, he knew you and me when we were in our mother's womb. He knows you, verse 15, through and through. Our frame, says David, was not hidden from him. The creator of something is the person who knows something best. And we know this to be true for ourselves. Many of you work or are studying in engineering. And much of your job includes collaborating with architects and designers to construct and to build many amazing things. But also, something that is part of your role is if something goes wrong and if something needs fixing, that you are the people to help because you know it best and you know what to do, don't you? And David is saying this is true of God. He knows us the best because he made us and he formed us together when we were still days and weeks old. And because of this, because God is our creator, he is the one who knows you and I the best. He knows you completely. He knows all about every facet of you. Your physical features. What is going on in your minds right now. And friend, this is a really comforting thing. This is something that David finds extreme comforting because he can think about how God knows everything about him, even the mundane things of his life. God knows when you are folding up the laundry or when you are cleaning up after your kids or grandkids that wants more. He knows when you are bored at school, bored at home, bored at work. He knows all about the loneliness that you are experiencing. And this psalm is saying, God knows. He knows and he cares. And God even knows the answers to your unanswered questions about your life. Honestly, we can genuinely look to God and say, I don't know, I don't know, I don't understand, but you do. Just flip back with me to Psalm 131, just a few pages. Just have a look quickly at Psalm 131 and see that David can genuinely trust that God knows. Not just about him, but knows of him personally and intimately and closely. Psalm 131, David says, My heart is not proud, Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. 
but I have calmed and quieted myself. I am like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I am content. God knows all things. And that provides David with great comfort. He knows all things because he is our all-present creator. And yet, if you've been reading the psalm, you can see for David that this causes a problem. When we think about it, this causes a problem, doesn't it? Because if God's eyes are on all people and at all times, if God knows and sees everything perfectly and exhaustively, then God also sees all of the evil and all of the wickedness and all of the junk that is in this world and in our lives. He knows the inclination of the thoughts of our hearts. He knows the evil that goes on for everyone who has ever lived. And so if God is grieved at the presence of sin and wickedness and evil, which he is, then it's right that we expect him to remove what offends him. God who sees all evil, the Bible says, will punish all evil. And so now David in this psalm turns to think about this and he calls on God to do exactly this. Our final heading for tonight. And he, that is, God who knows all, will not leave sin unpunished. Verses 17, uh, sorry, excuse me, verses 19 to 24. David turns in this psalm to call on God. Just look at the change of his tone. Verse 19. If only you, God, would slay the wicked. Away from me, all who are bloodthirsty. Now, to be clear, we do not know quite who these guys are exactly that David is referring to. But we do know things about them, don't we? Verse 20. They are people who speak evil about God. They misuse his name. Verse 21, they are people who hate God and are opposed to him and are rising up against him. And yet, instead of David trying to take revenge against these people, David in this psalm, he is content for God to deal with them himself. Verse 19, if only you, Lord, would slay the wicked. David knows that God says that it's his job to revenge. I will repay evil for evil, says the Lord. And David wants the God that he knows and the God who knows all and who sees all to remove anything that is opposed to him. And yet the surprise is that David ends this psalm asking that God would not just go out there and see if there is anything against and offensive to God out there. Did you notice, verse 23, he calls for God to look within his own heart and to search him and to know him, lest there be any wickedness, or verse 24, anything offensive in him. David is saying, search me, Lord, so that in my desire for you to punish sin, I'm not found to be a hypocrite and not hiding sin and concealing sin within me. And yet David does this, he asks God to do this, but you get no sense that David is worried. There is no sense that when he asks God to do such a thing, that God is going to treat David like he does the wicked people. 
the ones that are described in verse 19. David, he seems to be confidently asking God to search him. And if you know anything about David's life and history, then this will really be surprising, won't it? Remember, David, he is the one who coveted his neighbor's wife, who has committed adultery with her, who has murdered the husband and who has lied to cover it up under the process and who has dishonored God in all of his actions. He's asking God to search him and to find if there is anything wicked in him. How can he do that? How can he do that with such boldness and with such confidence? How can David so confidently in this psalm ask God to do such a thing? Well, the hint, I think, is right at the very, very beginning of the psalm. Just look at verse 1. Look at the second word. Lord, Yahweh, the covenant name of God. David is invoking the Lord, the one who he is in a relationship with. And it's this reason that David can be so confidently asking God to search him for any sin. His God is in a relationship with him and he is in a relationship with God so that David can be reconciled to God and his sin can be fully and utterly forgiven. David knows that because he is in a relationship with God, because of the sacrificial system, because of the temple where David can go and take a lamb or a bull or a goat, and he can offer it to the priest who can then lay his hands upon that animal, and because the priest can then slaughter that animal with the blood pouring out and then burn that animal on the altar and sprinkle that blood on the altar and in the temple, David knows that his sin can be forgiven because his sin is symbolically placed on that animal who dies in his place. And so the power of sin has no place in David's life anymore and he is forgiven. He knows that he stands right before God because of the sacrificial lamb. And yet, we're told in the New Testament time and time again, The reality is that the blood of bulls or goats or lambs, they cannot really take away sins. But all of those sacrifices, the the many hundreds and thousands of sacrifices in the Old Testament, what they were doing is that they were all pointing to the one ultimate sacrifice of the perfect Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who died to take the punishment for the sins of all who would trust in him. And the lesson for us tonight is this, that when you and I turn from our sin and when we trust in Jesus and his death on the cross for us, friends, our sin is forgiven. You are eternally secure and nothing can take you out of God's hands. And so with David, at the end of the psalm, you can say with him that the Lord is leading you in the way everlasting, to everlasting life. And so, if you're a Christian here tonight, you can genuinely pray this psalm. You can join in David with this prayer, knowing that the eternal consequence of your sins has been laid upon Jesus, and that they are dealt with fully and finally.
And so you can pray, search me, O Lord, test my heart, know me, see if there is anything offensive in me. And you can pray that knowing that you are eternally secure. Friends, this is a freeing thing indeed, is it not? It means that we don't need to hide our sins. We don't need to cover it up. Because it's been dealt with fully and finally. There is no need to wear masks, spiritually speaking, as it were. Trying to cover up our brokenness. Because God sees what we are like. And he has loved us anyway by sending Jesus to die on the cross for us. Isn't that wonderful? J.I. Packer, contemporary Christian author who died and went to be with the Lord a couple of years ago or so, he once wrote this. He says, I am never out of God's mind. There is no moment when his eye is off me or his attention distracted from me. There is no moment when his care falters. There is a tremendous relief in knowing that his love to me is utterly realistic based at every point on prior knowledge of all the worst about me, so that no discovery now can disillusion him about me in the way that I am so often disillusioned by myself. Friends, this is the power of the gospel. And when we grasp this, we don't need to pretend to be okay or sorted in front of others. Church is not a place for sorted people. It's for people who are the complete opposite. We can only be okay because of the Lord Jesus. And so we need to be a church that has a culture of honesty and a willingness to pray for one another and to say we are not sorted and we don't need to pretend to be sorted. And we can do that because all our sins and shame, it's all dealt with fully and finally by God's ultimate sacrifice in Christ Jesus. We can be brutally honest about ourselves and our struggles because God knows, he knows everything about us. And he has sent Jesus to die for us. And so with David, we can pray these last words. Search us and know our hearts. And that's how we're going to end our time together this evening. I'm going to read out these words as a prayer. If you're here and you don't yet know and trust in Jesus... But as I pray this, I want you to think about your sin, whether there is anything in your heart that is offensive to the Lord. And listen, don't take the right judgment of sin on yourself, because God has provided a sacrifice for you, one whom you can take, one who can take the punishment that you deserve, one who was slayed for you as though he were a sinner. And for those of us who are Christians, which I know are many, you too have been forgiven from all of your sin. You stand eternally right with God, and yet the presence of sin remains, doesn't it? What does Paul say in Romans 7? I do what I don't want to do, I don't do that I do want to do. And it's a genuine battle to live the Christian life. The power of sin is broken, yes, but the presence of sin remains. And so as I pray this prayer, with the power and with this grace of God, we can ask God to search us and to lead us in the way everlasting. So let's just spend some time in prayer. Let's bow our heads 
as I read these final words and then we will respond in song. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me. And Father, we pray that you would lead us all in the way everlasting. Amen.